It's April 27, 2020. This is Rook. last time you thought about buying new clothes, let alone changing the ones you have on while caught in the middle of quarantine. What is the future of fashion in the age of Corona? Designer Shadi Paran joins me from Tehran to explain how she's been coping. But first, collective action to help healthcare workers in Iran. One of our best known journalists and media personalities in the diaspora teams up with a prominent doctor and aid organizations to make a difference. Rudia Bakhtiar joins me from Los Angeles. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number four of Rook. Thank you for joining us. In about 25 minutes from now, we're actually going to go to Tehran and be joined by acclaimed fashion designer Shadi Parand uh, in Iran. And, you know, I'm going to talk about the future of fashion, the fashion industry and what she's been doing, uh, how she's been coping. Uh, but there's also a story that um, needs to be told or, or I just found extraordinary in terms of what Shadi's been doing in Tehran. She has a friend, uh, also in Tehran, who became infected. Uh, Shadi lives alone, and, and her friend, who was also living alone, became infected with COVID-19 uh, and became very, very sick. And Shadi said, why don't you come and stay with me, and I'll take care of you to help you get better. Uh, a simple act, but I, I think it's quite extraordinary. We could all put ourselves in that position. Um, think about that. W- w- would you do that? Would you? I mean, obviously, a dear friend is a dear friend, but this idea of at a time when some people are being being treated like pariahs if they are infected with uh, corona, you know, everyone wants to stay away from them. Somebody saying, hey, come into my home and I'm going to help you. I'm going to uh, take care of you. Uh, it was such a beautiful act and um, uh, a, a simple one, but an extraordinary one, one at the same time that I think everybody in the world can sort of identify with or put themselves in that position and decide whether they they would make that choice. Shadi Parand in Tehran joining me to talk about that and, of course, her her job, her life as a fashion designer and what that means in this current moment uh, and this current global economy. But before Tehran, Tehran Jalees, perhaps. In a way, my first guest is a microcosm or a prime example of exiled Iranian intelligentsia in our troubled world today. 
Like many prominent Iranians in the diaspora, Rudy Bakhtiar's childhood and adolescence coincided with the turbulent years of enormous political upheaval in Iran. But that didn't keep her down. Rudy pursued a career in journalism and by the late 1990s had found a place on CNN and soon became perhaps the most successful news personality of Iranian descent in the United States. These days, Rudy lives in Los Angeles and hosts a weekly radio show, but most recently, she's also played a pivotal role in bringing together a number of Iranian-American organizations, and now many in Canada and other places as well, in an effort to deliver resources and vital medical supplies to healthcare workers in Iran in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. The Humanitarian Relief Coalition is an example of the power and difference Iranians in the diaspora can make when taking collective action. And Rudy Abakhtiar joins me from Los Angeles, California today. Hi, Rudy. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you for doing this. And I want to get to this initiative for Iranian healthcare workers and resources. But uh, first things first, tell me how you have been doing with this pandemic. Uh, well, I've been trying to stay home. I am a caregiver. I moved to Los Angeles because my mother has Alzheimer's, and we got to a point where she needed full-time care. So even though I love the East Coast, I move here. I live with her in her three-bedroom apartment, and I have been trying to keep her away from everyone, and we've been sort of hunkered down as much as we can inside and trying to keep busy and stay healthy and uh make our lives interesting as much as we can to uh, be socially responsible. This is a disease that it seems like the only way to stop its advance is really to stay home, social distancing. Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing a lot of Zoom parties and um, a lot of yoga alone and uh, just coping. It's been very difficult for me because, as you know, I love to travel mm -hmm. and uh, this whole uh, moving to Los Angeles to be a caregiver to my mother was difficult enough. And now to be just jammed into this apartment constantly is pretty difficult. And um, But I think it's all of our responsibilities to do what we can. There was a news report this weekend that said that coronavirus has now become the leading cause of death in Los Angeles County. I don't know if you saw that. How, how do you sense people are dealing with this where you are? I mean, what's what's it like on the streets if you do go out? You know what? Uh, it's At first, we were great. I think we did really well. Right off the bat, everybody stayed home. The streets were completely empty. All the shops were mostly closed, and people were taking this very seriously. I feel like we are lagging now and we're we've been irresponsible people after hearing that los angeles is doing so well i think that they've started to go out a little bit more i see people without masks and gloves and you know i don't know how many times people are washing their hands so uh, i think we're you know seeing a little flip and i, I feel that this is going to happen a lot to a lot of different places because if there's a tendency to get comfortable and start moving into your old habits, and this coronavirus is not going anywhere until we have a vaccine mm -hmm. for it and treatment. So I think, you know, uh, we really need to be careful and uh, try to stay vigilant. It is extremely hard. I mean, how many books can you read? How many documentaries and movies can you watch? And 
it's it's been incredibly taxing but you know this is it this is you know the best thing we can do for these nurses and doctors on the front lines which are really you know they're the there are foot soldiers this is a war and they're fighting this war for us mm-hmm. and we owe it to them to stay home and not spread this disease so they can do that the the best they can for their patients and keep themselves safe so again i'm really disappointed to see that we're slipping i hope we get control back and people understand that we still have a lot of work to be done i think that's what's really hard about this and Rudy, can I just ask you, I don't know if you're you're comfortable answering it. It's okay if you're not, but it, it, your mom, who has Alzheimer's, that that's complicating when you guys have to isolate and you have to worry about her in general. Uh, how, how does that affect things for you? You know, it's been difficult because we have caregivers coming uh, from different parts. Of, I have two caregivers who come from two different parts of the city, so we're constantly being exposed to whoever they're exposed to. And, you know, it's a risk. I can't take care of my mother uh, by myself. I tried at first, but then I called them and said, please come and help. And, uh, you know, again, you tell everyone, wash your hands, take off your shoes. I try to keep everything clean and washed. And, and, you know, she doesn't like to put on a mask, so I can't take her outside. Mm. Uh, I took her out for a walk the other day. Someone yelled at me, and this is so irresponsible of you. And I said, you know, she needs some fresh air. She won't put on a mask. Would you like to try to make her put on a mask? But again, it is, you know, I need to be very careful. And I'm, uh, you know, CNN keeps putting on these horrible stories, you know, heartbreaking stories of children who can't be next to their mothers and fathers when they're, passing away, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people are dying alone with nurses and doctors. Again, the true heroes right now on the front lines are really taking a, a big uh, 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 hit for all of us. And, um, you know, it, these, it's heartbreaking. I can't imagine my mother getting sick and me not being able to be by her side. You know, I left my job at CNN. I left my anchoring show at yes. CNN. Because my father got cancer, yes. and I wanted to be with him when he passed. So, I, you know, for me, my parents are everything, and I feel like they gave me such a beautiful life uh, after a difficult, hard uh, life in Iran where so many of our family members were executed. And then Dr. Shapur Bakhtiar, my hero, my uncle, was assassinated. And I, you know, I really cherish them. And so I did stay with my father until he died. And again, seeing these families that aren't able to be with their loved ones when they are suffering in yes. their last moments is heartbreaking. I want to ask you about this new initiative of yours. And yes. in talking about it, you know, I should say that before we launched Rook, I told you about it and we discussed the diaspora and that I wanted to do this for a couple of reasons. One, to build some kind of platform or connective tissue in English for people of Iranian descent around the world, our global community, but also because it's just been such a difficult time for Iranians between global politics and sanctions and the brutal crackdown on protesters last year and the devastating shooting of Flight 752 and earthquakes and COVID. And it can be so overwhelming. Yeah. 
And for many Iranians around the world, the question can be, what can we possibly do? And how can we do this? Because we're not so good sometimes at working together collectively. But now there's this nonpartisan initiative to help with medical supplies, and it's inspiring how it's growing. So tell me how this humanitarian relief coalition got started. Well, honestly, I can't take any credit for it. Uh, I think the Aloy brothers, specifically uh, Dr. Kamyar Aloy, I brought him on my show very early on uh, when COVID was uh, taking Iranians out and it hadn't really gotten to the U.S. Although it had, we just weren't reporting it because even during that time, there were 8,000 Chinese coming to America a day, mostly to California and to New York. And we just, you know, we were lax in, in reporting it and taking care of it. But anyway, in Iran, what was happening was uh, Iran, unfortunately, is number two in number of doctors and nurses that have died because of COVID. There, you know, we are collecting uh, names and, 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 and facts, and there are over a hundred where the Iranian government will say there's only three. And um, I started to cover COVID and realized that the Iranian government had basically not brought it up because they had upcoming elections and they didn't want it to affect the elections. And so here were these incredible doctors uh, going out, not knowing what they're dealing with and dying. And of course, a lot of people died as well. And uh, it was just heartbreaking to witness this government uh, being so brutal to its people. Now, I am fortunate that uh, I know Dr. Kamyar Alai and his brother from when they were in Iran in 2008, they were trying to stop the spreading of the AIDS epidemic right. that was growing in Iran. Right. And they were arrested by Ahmadinejad's government who said, you know, we don't have a gay, gays here and this is not a gay thing and threw them in jail for three years. So I was working with a human rights organization trying to get them out. So when they came to Washington, D.C., I was excited to meet them and they are good friends of mine. And I had uh, brought Sanjay Gupta on my radio show, and I also brought Kamyar because I truly trust this man. And uh, after the show, we talked about, you know, we have to do something. And by the next week, Kamyar had called all these organizations. He himself had brought everyone together. You know, uh, these two Alai brothers are extraordinary, and uh, they are very smart, they are very caring, and they really deserve the credit for this. I have just supported them and tried to uh, bring in some big money, and I have been, you know, incredibly happy with the, the caliber of people that are supporting this effort, and the fact that, like you say, it's Nonpartisan. The idea is to raise money to send supplies. Is that is that? Uh, yes, yes. Right. And you know, these brothers will you know verify and provide uh, the pattern of where they're buying things. It won't be just anonymous for sending money somewhere. Actually, they have a plan of where to get what, and. Um, to uh, basically get supplies. I, for me, it was very important to get supplies for our doctors because unlike America where we had actually run out of things, there is a company in Iran that actually still had masks 
masks and gloves and just wasn't giving it to Well, her. this is what I was wondering, because when I looked at the uh, the mission of uh, mm-hmm. the Humanitarian Relief Coalition, or HUREC, as, mm-hmm. as it's called, um, so delivering necessary medical supplies to hospitals, medical teams, patients most affected by COVID-19 in Iran, uh, I thought, well, uh, maybe this is naive of me, but I thought, well, how do we achieve this goal when these supplies are seemingly in such shortage shortage in the United States and, and, and in North America itself? So do you know yeah. the answer to that? Well, I think, you know, there are other countries that they will go from. Um, they're relying on China. They're relying on European countries that have more, uh, uh, have better supplies right now. And again, these, again, within Iran, there's some supplies now. Um, uh, you know, uh, obviously, they we needed stuff from outside of Iran. But uh, again, it's a coordinated effort from all the doctors. Who, again, uh, there's doctors who go and uh, perform surgeries and come back, uh, and often, you know, back and forth. So they're in touch with the um, other doctors. So uh, they were going to make sure that everything gets to the right people, because several times you've heard the government has turned away um, uh, doctors without borders, they've turned away uh, different kinds of supplies. We're hearing all sorts of stories. They've sensed them. What is the rationale? China. What's the rationale they give for 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 turning away Médecins Sans Frontières? Uh, it's, uh, you know, stupidity. It's not rational. They're stupid. And I believe that, honestly, I think you know, they don't care about the Iranian people. Tell me a bit about what this the response has been. You said that you've had some really um, heartwarming or inspiring responses from some folks to this, this initiative, this uh, um, human, humanitarian uh, um, coalition, this, this idea. Tell, tell, can you give me an example of what, what's inspired you? I, you know, I, uh, I have amazing friends. And uh, I think, um, you know, I've called them, and they've, they've, they've listened, and they've donated $100,000, $50,000, and, uh, you know, big numbers, and, you know, really feeling for their, um, their brothers and sisters in Iran. It's been really incredible, given the fact that Iranians usually don't like to talk about Iran, nobody wants to get political uh, in fact, I think uh, as people saw me more and more politicized uh, with regards to Iran, because I really believe that um, this is a government that uh, is not good for the world. Rudy, when you say Iranians are are typically, uh, especially those in the uh, you know outside of Iran, the community, mm-hmm. and I think we would all understand this. We we've all seen it. We've all felt it, uh, and there are reasons for it, and there are good reasons for it. That go back to that notion of PTSD, perhaps, et cetera. Iranians are hesitant to be political, are hesitant to uh, to stick up their uh, you know put up their hand or 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 put out their neck uh, uh, in the diaspora. What what's different now? What are you sensing uh, has changed? Is it just an accumulation of things? I mean, there's been all kinds of atrocities uh, over the years. What is it that has changed people in this moment, do you think? I think the idea that we're helping doctors and we're sending supplies to everyone is something that everyone can get behind. The reason why people don't want to get political is because they are scared. Give us some perspective on this moment, because you've seen a lot. Our our Iranian diaspora can be quite 
factional, uh, divided, sectarian, to say the least. I know you've seen that close up. Uh, there, But there are times when we really come together. I mean, I can say that the effort to help out after the BAM earthquake in the early 2000s really galvanized the Iranian community here in Canada. That, that was one of the first times we I saw that kind of collectivity. And we True. did see it again around this tragic Flight 752 shooting uh, as well earlier this year. Do you feel this is another moment where the Iranian community around the world outside of Iran is ready for some kind of collective action? Well, I always hope. You know, if I don't hope, I've got nothing. Uh, my life is, um, is really uh, uh, torn between a reporter's job and a uh, love of Iran and a sadness for Iran and and a you know desire for the Iranian people to be able to live like I do in America. I was born in America. I was taken to Iran at the age of five, and I came back at the age of 17. And everything that I was able to accomplish was only because I was here. I would have never been able to do any of this in Iran. And, and I have taken a lot of chances. I've gone right up very close to Iran and reported. I've, even in 2006, I went into Iran and reported. And I've really taken some chances with this government, but it's because I believe that Iran is one of the most amazing places in the world. I always say it's the heart and soul of Earth. It's the hottest, first of all, the hottest place in the world is in Iran. And again, I grew up under the shadow of Shapur Bakhtiar, one of the most um, just, uh, men I ever met in my life, and uh, I'm truly, you know, I think just by virtue of loving him, I feel like this is my responsibility to to at least be the voice for the voiceless. So, and I've, you know, made it my life. So, Rudy John, before I let you go, um, people listening to this might want to help. There's yes, a good. there's a on the website for the uh, humanitarian relief coalition. There's it's it's really interesting to see because it uh, when we talk about a nonpartisan effort, it's there's a number of different charities and organizations from different parts of the Iranian uh, community and, and diaspora who signed on to this. I know that's true of of Canada as well, and I imagine different parts of the world. Um, so so what do you tell people who want to help out with this initiative? Well, again, um, if you go on the, the uh, website for HUREC, uh, HUREC, uh, HUREC Coalition, H-U-R-E-C-O-A-L-I-T-I-O-N.com, you'll see their mission, you'll see their history, and then you'll see that the people who are uh, supporting this, the, the organizations supporting the, this effort are almost all of the, uh, uh, you know, um, nonprofits I know and ones that I truly like, like Keep Children in School, uh, Moms Against Poverty, uh, uh, Iranian American Bar Association, Pars Equality Center, Child Foundation, Child International, NEPOC, OMID, Multicultural Institute for Development, Iranian American Community Information Center. I mean, you can go on there and find someone that you believe in and trust and donate and... Um, this has been unique. And it's not easy to get all these big, you know, Iranians, uh, powerful Iranians to support each other and support one effort, right? And especially when you're sending money to Iran and supplies to Iran and, and everyone says, well, is it really going to get to the people? 
and you have to just keep saying yes, yes, it will. This we promise it will. You know, we have a path. Uh, Doctor Aloy and his brother, um, they they basically got their doctorates in Iran. They are you know familiar with all the NGOs. They have a lot of connections, and they're working with other doctors who come and go. Uh, the uh, doctor who started the uh, Iranian American uh, Medical Association. He also, um, you know, is a uh, kidney transplant specialist who goes there and works twice a year. So the everyone, the effort is just, you know, everyone realized that we can't and we don't want to. This is not political. I remember that somebody was so surprised when they called into my show and they said. It, this is because this government is so awful. And, and I said, listen, put that aside right now. We need to save Iranians. This is, you know, neither here or there. I don't want to get political about this because I don't want to turn people off from joining this organization because this is an effort to save Iranian lives. And by the way, if it, it's also saving world lives because if it doesn't get stopped in one country, it's yes. going to keep yes. spreading. So. We have a lot of work to do, and I'm so glad, Gian, you're covering this. This is, was an important effort. I'm glad you are highlighting the fact that we're working together, and and uh, it's non-political, as political as I sound. Let me ask you one final question before I let you go, and, and thanks for yeah. taking so much time, Rudy. Uh, you've been through a lot in your life. Um, <laughs> when you want to get involved, just to, to answer this personally, if you can, when you want to get involved in a coalition like this, where is it in you to want to still um, fight, to want to still believe that the change can come, to want to still be at the center for or be working hard on something like this uh, uh, after all you've been through? I uh, was lucky enough uh, to go to Iran in 2006 after my father passed away. Um, and uh, I reported there. I started reporting there, and um, I got a reporter's permit. I was shocked that they gave it to me, and I started reporting there. And I also started going to these universities and talking to these students, and they gave me hope that, uh, that there is a better Iran coming. They are, they are, these young people in Iran are so smart. They are so driven. They have so much hope for their country. And Iran is a very rich country if it's run right. If all the money isn't sent to create Shia upheaval, Iran can be a beautiful country once again and can contribute wonderfully to the fabric of the world. You know, I love living in America with all of our problems. I love this country. I love the uh, freedom we have, uh, you know, to... Uh, uh, basically attack our president or make fun of somebody without going to prison. And uh, I, I just think I want this for everywhere. And I don't differentiate between Iran and Syria and Iraq. And for me, people are people, and I want everyone in the world to have freedom. We have our problems in America. We need to – it's certainly not a perfect country, but it is a country where – you have a, a, a clear measure of freedom. And I, you know, I have hope. I've never lost hope that uh, Iran will one day soon be that country again. That's what keeps me going. Rudy, uh, warm regards to, to you, to your mom. Take care of yourself Thanks, out there. Yeah. Thank you for doing this today. And 
you have to come on my radio show. I'm in. Anytime. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Rudy Bakhtiar, journalist, radio host. She's been one of the people behind the Humanitarian Relief Coalition. Rudy joined me from Los Angeles, California today. This is Rook, conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Thank you to all the people who are uh, discovering this program and starting to spread the word about it. Uh, it means so much to us. Uh, we really, uh, oh, there's the middle music. <laughs> you know, when you hear that middle music, uh, it just means I'm going to talk and hopefully not talk rubbish. Uh, so yes, I wanted to say, Thank you to those who've been reaching out to us and, and uh, keep the discussion going. You know, that was a very interesting chat with Rudy Bakhtiar. Uh, she doesn't shy away from her opinions. And this is probably a good place to say that this program is going to be dedicated to bringing on guests with opinions from across the social and political and geographic sphere from all over the world. Uh, and we will let people's opinions speak for themselves and we'll strive for what we call balance over time a number of different perspectives in the diaspora from episode to episode and month to month. Uh, we certainly know that there are uh, a lot of opinions amongst people of Iranian background, never a shortage. Uh, and of course, we welcome any discussion or feedback. So you can send letters to info at rookmedia.com, info at rookmedia.com. You can, you, you can also... You know, find us on YouTube and Spotify and SoundCloud and iTunes now. I had a friend of mine say, um, what kind of commitment is this to, if I subscribe on YouTube? There's no commitment. In Nist, really, it's, it'll be easy. You just press subscribe and you get some updates on when a new episode drops. Uh, it's free on all those platforms. Also, we want to try something new. You know, you can um, hear throughout the show. Shai, can you, can you just bring down the uh, music for a second? You can hear. Do you have your keyboard with you? Yes, I do. Just kill the middle. Okay. So uh, Shai and I collaborated on that opening theme music that you hear. So, so just play us the theme, the regular theme. Uh, he's got his keyboard there with him, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, a very moving version of the theme. Touching. Merci. So uh, now what we're going to do is we're going to put a call out to the musicians out there who are listening to this uh, this show already, whether you're listening to it on YouTube or podcast or whatever. In, in case you might be interested, send us your version of our opening theme, and we'll try to play them and give you a shout-out during the show. So it can be any kind of different, like, Shia, if you were to do a, a different style, like a... a um, for, for example, uh, in jazz music. In jazz, a jazz style of art. Right, that, thank you. Yeah. We created in a punk rock theme. A punk rock, well, you can't really do that on the piano right now. But, uh, 
but can you but you could do a um can you do is there some sort of Iranian six eight version of our theme uh, that <laughs> probably. but you can you Uh, right. Anyway, no matter what your instrument is, if you're a cellist or you're a, a, a rock guitarist or you're a you're a hip hop musician or, or whatever you do, um, if you want to send us a version of your uh, version of our theme, um, you can bring back the middle music now. Um, thank you, Shia. That was that was. Uh, Send us your version of your th- of our theme, and, and we'll play it. We'll play it throughout the show, and we'll explain. Just tell us where you are in the world and um, how you created the music, unless we can figure that out ourselves. So again, you can send that to info at rookmedia.com or uh, hit us up on YouTube or Instagram and... Tell us you got something for us and we'll get in touch with you somehow. Thank you. Well, there is no doubt that this pandemic has brought loss to many of us. Some of us have lost loved ones to COVID-19 or jobs or sources of livelihood. Bounds and social connection as we knew them may not exist anymore. Some of us might argue that freedom as it was embodied in life before Corona has vanished. Restrictions on going outdoors, on public gatherings, a six feet distance with almost everyone in all public places has created discomfort, even anxiety in many folks. There are some, however, who can and do find happiness or creativity, even in the absence of full freedom. And maybe Shadi Parand is a good example. Shadi Parand is an acclaimed fashion designer who's been working in fashion professionally for over three decades. Her works have been showcased everywhere from the Victoria and Albert Museum to the Louvre to Milan. After several years in Paris and New York, she returned to her homeland of Iran, where she has been active in fashion design for over 10 years. In Shadi's own words, her early childhood inspiration was her couturière mother, and later in life, traditional Persian art and heritage patterns and colors inspired her, which have become main elements of her designs. She's also an avid advocate for environmental conservation and the revitalization of heritage monuments and architectural assets. One of her most popular rehabilitation projects, along with an architect in Iran, was an historic building that was to be turned into a five-star hotel, later known in the media as the Sanctions Hotel. And most recently, Shadi took the extraordinary step of inviting a friend of hers infected by COVID-19 to come and live with her so she could take care of her. It's quite a story. What is the role of art and creativity in times of uncertainty and global grief? What can we learn from design and fashion about our past and present in the Iranian diaspora? Shadi Panan joins me right now from Tehran, Iran. Hello, Shadi. Hello, Jan. How are you? I'm well, and I'm so happy to speak to you. Merci. You've agreed to come on and do this with us. Thank you. Uh, first of all, Shadi, tell me where exactly you are right now and what it's like in Iran right now. Fortunately or unfortunately, tonight I'm not in my own house. I'm at a friend's house tonight. So it's not really confinement today for us. 
but um, after like two months of confinement, today we decided with some friends to gather, just four of us, of course. But that's a great occasion to be with you as well. So well, that that's really interesting because we've been hearing about people getting back to work and shops opening in Iran and public transit full again. So I guess you're seeing that and you're one of those people who's going out now? Yes, yes. I went out, but I'm going out today. I mean, I, I came here to this friend of mine, but those are the friends that I've been seeing all along these days. I mean, we're just two or three friends that we've been seeing each other and because each one of us was living alone in our respective homes, that's really not possible to just be alone for two months long. So we had to just, with taking all the precautions and everything, but we keep seeing each other. What kind of precautions do you take? Every kind of precautions, like taking off the shoes and we have defined just three zones in our houses. From the door, we have the red zone, we have a yellow zone, and then we have a green zone. And then so we respect the, each time that take our dresses off or changing the shoes and just taking the mask off or just getting sterilized before getting into, into the green zone. So we are very careful. Wait a minute. Is that something you invented or is that like a thing that other, other people know about? I've never heard of this red zone, yellow zone, green zone. I guess uh, it was just created like this. I mean, in my house, I have the entrance door, then there's the second door, and then there's another door to get into the real interior of the house. So everyone who was coming, I said, okay, you you need to take off your shoes. This is the red zone. And then for Mm -hmm. entering this, you need to be sterilized. And then there was three steps that they have to take care. Mm -hmm. So we just said red. Yellow and green, it, it just happened. So, I mean, I don't know if I created or, or not, but it happened. <laughs> so you fashion designed the way people can come into your house? <laughs> I, well, I believe in to be creative and just I like to make everything fun and to give a picture or to make it a bit um, more figurative, I guess. So maybe, well, this did, is what, what we did. You didn't actually, you don't actually use the colors. You don't paint the floor or something, the yellow zone. No, 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 <laughs> okay, no. Okay. I just defined this is the red zone, this is the yellow zone, and this is the green zone. No, that's it, Sh- just by word. Shadi, you mentioned spending your time alone, you and the, the four friends, you all live separately alone. How have you been spending your days during this quarantine in Iran? Well, actually for me, it was a quite a happy time unexpectedly but it was a time that I had I could just do whatever I wanted to there was no repetition no boredom it was like uh, I was very happy so nobody would call me I mean something for me was very bold during this day that nobody would call me Shadi Khanum anymore that was the thing that I couldn't stand and that was a dream I had so nobody would call me in the house what do you mean what do you mean? They previously because um, in the house I live, my atelier is in the first floor and my house is in the second floor. So in my atelier with my employees, everybody would call me whatever, whenever I wanted to take a time for myself. Hmm. Everybody would come and interrupt me as for a question or for something to do something or whatever. So I never had the time to be by myself, and for everything I would do, I was interrupted. So. With this COVID-19 thing and uh, with the confinement, 
I had the luxury to be quiet and to be calm and just do whatever I wanted to do with the time that I defined for it. And it was a major luxury for me. And I cherish every second of it. <laughs> wow. I mean, you really see it that way, even though... Oh, yes, I do. Because I we, do. We, we know there's this is going to be... A, the ep- economic implications of this are going to be disastrous. We know that it's a... Uh, a lot of people are suffering. We know that it's a scary time for the world. So you can, with that knowledge, you can still be optimistic or positive about this and see it as what you call a happy time for you. That doesn't mean that I don't care about other people, that I don't have any uh, compassion for others or uh, anything like such. But for me, as in a personal perspective, it was a blessing. Well, I mean, part of the blessing is you don't have employees uh, calling you Shadi Khanum and asking you questions, but that means your your business (laughs) your business isn't happening, right? So, what is business like for a fashion designer in the middle of a global pandemic? These last two months, in a business wise, it was very zero. I mean, it was no business, no orders, no selling, no buying, no nothing. But in a different way for me, it was a creative time. It was a time that I, that I had the calm and the quiet time to be very creative and think about what's going to be the future, what should be the fashion. In the, just before this, it was a few months, I was starting to have a problem with the way that people are consuming things without considering what they are doing to themselves and to the world and what they are buying. That was starting to really bother me. And I was thinking to just make a new pattern of things, new dresses, so it would slow down the consumption and just making people aware of the quality but not the quantity. Hmm. Things that you buy, that you keep, that you cherish, that you love, that you're beautiful in it, and you are happy. Without just buying, 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 and just using once or twice and then throwing away or not even remembering that you have them, things like this. But these days I'm very concerned about this. I I always was, but these days I'm even more concerned about it. So let me, I'll get to your designing because it's so interesting what you've just said, but, but, but two steps back. When you say it wasn't a time that was created for me. It was a time where I had zero business. You're speaking about this crisis, this pandemic, this era of COVID-19 in the past tense. Do you feel it's it's over now in Iran or that it's somehow coming to an end? Not really, but different. It's different, yes. I just had like two, three days ago, it was a project that I talked about with somebody and now it's they, they launched me on this project again. So I'm starting, I mean, as of tomorrow, I'm going to seriously starting this project. So yes, life is coming back. But although we're going to have Ramadan, which is a normally a slow time for business, but it feels like that tomorrow I'm going to start at nine in the morning and I'm, the life will start again. Not that the atelier works, but personally, I'm going to take a real business hours now. It's something in between the two. You know, one of the things that we 
people in the Iranian diaspora, people of Iranian descent outside of Iran have been experiencing for the last few months is seeing things happen in Iran and to a certain extent recognizing that that's going to happen here too. We've now learned that, you know, a lot of the early stages of COVID-19 uh, that we we watched happen in China or, or Iran or then in Italy came to North America, for example, or to people all over the world. So in a way, you might say Iran is ahead of the curve in terms of the, the reopening as well. What are you seeing on the streets? What are the kind of conversations people are having about opening shops up again or going back in the streets? I mean, it's it it's obviously exhilarating to get back to some sense of normalcy, but it would be terrifying as well, no? I think we are facing a new normal. The old normal that we had, I mean, the life that we used to have before Corona was something else. And now we are uh, facing a new life. People are still very conservative, very scared. They don't know what to do. But there is this will, this boredom. They are coming in the street more and more. Now we are facing a new world that we are discovering. We need to get used to it. We need to confront this new world. There's a new challenge. There's a new opportunity in life. And people, they are not used to it. They don't know it yet. We have to get to know it. When you say there's been zero business for the last couple of months for you, I mean, I know you've been very successful, so maybe you, you're you fine for that. I don't know. Do you worry about paying the bills? Do you worry about staying afloat? I do, but um, I'm quite confident. During my um, professional life and personal life, I've had many, many occasions with lots of ups and downs. We need to reorganize the job definitions. Things are changing, but I'm sure we can manage. We need to be flexible. We need to be flexible, but still optimistic. Is clothing in general considered a luxury item? It, it occurs to me that even here, say in Canada, most of us are basically at home and not thinking of new, yes. new wardrobes, right? Now, <laughs> wearing the same Absolutely. outfit every day. So Absolutely. what, so what yes. happens to, to selling clothing? I mean, let, forget the fashion designer. I mean, what happens to your industry at all? I'm sure fashion industry will be facing a major change, a major change which is most needed, I think. Fashion was becoming just consumption, 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 and now I think fashion should creatively reflect the need of the people in debt as opposed to the superficial consumerism. I mean, the design of the dresses is changing. I think the way that we we deal with our clothes will be changing, I'm sure. During this time in the house, today actually it was the first day that I really dressed up after many, many times. But my approach to my own wardrobe was absolutely different. During the time that I was at home, I was very many robe de chambres and many dresses. But today I wanted to feel feminine, that I wanted to be different, but it wasn't the same dresses. My approach was absolutely different. And I'm sure that will be so for everybody, I think. When you talk about the fashion industry changing forever, that's your industry. You are welcoming that change, but that's also daunting as well, right? You, you can't necessarily expect to 
be able to sell the same way you were, can you? I don't think so. No, that won't be similar anymore. I mean, we. Uh, I mean, fashion, besides the production and the industrial wise, I mean, it's based on creativity. So we need to be creative, flexible, spontaneous, and just go with the wave that is coming. I mean, actually, I think fashion people are will have less problem with that because they are used to this constant creativity and flexibility hmm. so they can adopt themselves easier. I want to actually get into your your specific designs and what you've done over the years as that creative force in fashion. But let me just stick with this moment in COVID-19 right now. And in, in a conversation prior to this interview, you told me that your biggest concern is the environment. And while you've been confined to home, you've been recycling what you have at your place to make not only clothes, but also candles and face masks and shampoos. You're, you're, you're growing <laughs> your own vegetables using your own homemade compost. Tell us about this ecosystem you've created. I'm trying to be creative and just the way that I pass time at home. So I made a deal to myself that I'm going to buy a strict minimum stuff. So I'm going to try to be really independent from outside and I'm going to try to be uh, creative. So in, in my cooking, even the gardening, I try to find a new way of gardening and just all the old seeds I had that they were expired that I try to say, okay, what can I do if I can plant them, what I can do with this? I just try to create a new way for just shining all the old um, silver stuff. Hmm. I mean, uh, there's normal this product that you need to, you have for cleaning the silver. But I remember my great grandparents, they used um, what's called. Hold on. Ashes? Ash, 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 oh, ash. Wow. Right. Oh. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Ash, so I tried to clean my silver with ash. And then I remembered that somewhere in just in Instagram or somewhere I saw somebody that they're cleaning their silver or uh, with the uh, ketchup. So I said, I don't have any ketchup, so I'm going to fetch some tomato concentrate. So I made a mix with tomato concentrate and ashes, and I clean all my silver stuff, and they're shining and they're beautiful. I love it. You really have embraced this time in certain ways. I'm trying to get a sense of whether you're an exception in Tehran or uh, if you know others who are feeling as um, creatively inspired, shall we say, you know, around the house as, as you are. I know a lot of colleagues of mine who have made a lot of dresses and this friend of mine who's a fashion designer, she called me yesterday, she, she said, Shredi, I'm making my collection, but for, for each dresses, I have a matching mask. <laughs> So I'm sure everybody, I'm sure everybody has their own creativity. Is she also in Tehran? Yes, she's in Tehran. So, Shadi, I want to get into more of your life story and how you've become this acclaimed fashion designer and what it's like to be doing that work in Iran. But first, I have to ask you about this story. I understand that you have a close friend who became infected with COVID and you then invited her to come and stay with you so that you could take care of her. Is that correct? Yes, this friend of mine, she, she was infected by COVID. 
and she lives alone. Well, as soon as she called me, she she said, Shreddy, I'm sick. So I contacted some doctors, some friends of mine and everything. So every day I would go and buy some medicine for her and just cook for her and just take it to to her house. And she would come and fetch the food and the medicine and everything at the door. And then during the time that she had corona, her cat bited her and so she couldn't walk anymore. So she couldn't come to the door and just going to the stairs and come to the door and just get the medicine and the food. So I said that this is not possible. I'm going to come and get you and you're going to come to my house. So I just, with all the precautions, with the mask, with the gloves, with the shoes, I mean, with everything, I really covered myself and went to her house and I fed her and just put it in my car. But she was sitting in the back of my car with sanitizer and everything, and I took her to my house so she had her own room. I couldn't leave her alone in her house. It was impossible. I heard about this story a couple of days ago, and, I, and I've become sort of obsessed by it. It's a very simple act, but it really is quite extraordinary at the same time. This is something that everyone in the world right now could put themselves in your place and think about what kind of decision that they would make. And I think to a certain extent, no one would blame someone if they would say, look, uh, uh, it's my friend, but I have to protect myself or, you know, other people in my life. So I'm going to move them into a a hotel or into some other place or just keep bringing them supplies or whatever it is. Uh, It's extraordinary that you, obviously you're a great friend, but that you were willing to take that risk. Tell me about deciding when you made that decision, what was in your mind? For me, I had to help her. That was the only thing on my mind. I just said I have to be wise and smart. I didn't do it as a stupid or just impulsive action. I said, well, she's there. She needs help. I can help her, but I can help her. At the same time, I can protect myself. I don't have, uh, I mean, my uh, my son is big enough. He's not in my house anymore. He's not even in Iran. So I'm... Among other friends, I'm the only one who can really help her. I'm here, so I have to help her. That's it. And then I will take all the precautions. And so I, we did both of us, and we are both fine now. What did she say when you said, listen, I'm going to move you into my house? How did she react? She said, okay. She was so much in pain. At the beginning, the first day when I told her, she said, no, don't come, don't do it, and everything. And then she was so much in pain. She said, okay, Shredi, I'm waiting for you. So I just went and got her. And how's she doing now? Now she's fine. It's a beautiful story, Shadi. It's a beautiful story of friendship. <laughs> I mean, you said earlier that people are scared, uh, you know, when you were talking about others uh, in Tehran, uh, but y- your act suggests that you're, you're somewhat fearless. Uh, are, I mean, are you scared yourself? of what could happen to you? No, I'm not. For me, I always had this motto that the only thing that I need to fear is the fear itself. I love challenges, and I mean, my whole life. So I said, there's always a solution for everything. So I just try to make it, uh, to find a way so we can just make it happen without just being like crazy or fearless. There's always a way to make something happen and uh, just, you need to be creative and just go ahead. I mean, Mm. you have in the hospitals, you have all these nurses and doctors, they are doing it. 
So it's the yeah, same thing. Yeah, they are. And we're grateful for that. Do you, have you had to take her to the hospital at all? Two weeks later, I had to take her to the hospital because of her injury. But... Mm. Um, and what's it like in the in the hospitals in, in Tehran? What's it like right now? What did you observe? So we went to the Jam Hospital and we, they wouldn't admit any corona cases. So we had to go through the test, through checkup with the emergency doctor and everything. And then they admitted us and she had to stay there for a week. So not every day, but every day or every other day, I would go and visit her and just get her some food or things that she likes so she, was, she wouldn't be bored. Because she was admitted in the hospital on the first day of no rules. And you know, no rules for us is the new year. It's, so I wouldn't let her alone in the hospital. <laughs> Was there a way in which she officially found out that she had corona, or do you just suspect that she did? I mean, did she, was she tested and, and tested no. positive? At that time, no, she wasn't tested. But you know, there's these telephone numbers that you call, been set by the government. So you call them, you tell them your symptoms, and they check on with you and everything, and they give you guidelines. You talk with doctors all over the phone, and the doctors just pronostic that uh, she's got corona. And she had all the symptoms. I mean, from A to Z, she had all the symptoms. Well, again, I, th- I think uh, she's very lucky to have you as a friend, and, and uh, that was a, a remarkable gesture. Uh, you know, that to, wasn't to, the only friend. There were some other friends who helped her, too. <laughs> well, I just think it's a beautiful story. By the way, I'm speaking with uh, the fashion designer, Shadi Paran. She is in Tehran, Iran right now. This is Rook, conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. Let's talk about fashion and you, Shadi. You've said you make sure that your customers have a one-of-a-kind garment. You've, you've never made the same design twice, that you incorporate traditional I- Iranian prints and integrate them into more, more modern styles. These kinds of designs are can't be that affordable for average folks, are they? Who are your clients? I have clients all over the world, actually. I mean, they are not just Iranians. I have a lot of um, customers all around the world, in States, in Paris, in France, in England. There's a lot of them in England. They... People who want to be different mainly. There are a lot of artists, a lot of artists among my clients and just people who want to be different. Your designs have this East meets West element. So so tell me about that fusion. It's East or Iran, uh, 21st century, modern now. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's been just adapted to our time, to our present time. I believe all the good designs that we used to have, and they have lasted throughout 800 years or 700 years, and they are made for our culture, for our lifestyle, for our climate. So I just take all the beauty and all the aesthetic part of it, and I just adapt it to our now, to our present time, and I put my shoddy touch to it, which is what we call the little... Sheytuni, I would say in Farsi, or just uh, there's always a special touch to it. <laughs> but you also want to break away from certain stereotypes about tradition, about the Middle East, about Iran in fashion. Tell me about that. How, which, which stereotypes would you want to break? I always try to, to think out of the box and just to be different and to break laws. The Iranian people, they were not so used to have Iranian fashion designers. They were just always following the 
foreign French fashion designers, and they were not used to have just Iranians can do it. Right. And uh, when I started, it was quite hard. But then the funny thing was that I got more successful out of Iran with my um, Western customers, and then I got accepted in Iran. And that was <laughs> the, that was hard for me. Shadi, what do you think that that says? that you became more successful in Iran after you became successful in the West? I didn't like it. I didn't want it to be like this. For me, it was just something that it was very unpleasant for me. I wanted to be first be successful in my country, with my family, with my friends, with my um, people. But when it wasn't like this, I, 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 I was really depressed. And now I don't see it with geographic limits anymore. I just want to do it for everybody. And I, I see it now, I see it very differently. But hang on a second, because your your journey is somewhat counterintuitive. You talk about how you preferred to be uh, successful in Iran first, but you ultimately did have to m- move to the West and you, you gained acclaim there. Then you, you returned to Iran. So, I mean, you were like many of us in the diaspora, living in Paris and, and uh, New York, uh, two of the world capitals of fashion, of course. You obviously made a choice to leave Iran at some point, as you've been talking about. But then, then you not only returned to Tehran, but you stayed. Why? Because I was much happier here. And I was ready for my work. I was very much more inspired. Iran was giving me this platform to perform what I really wanted to do. This, this would be really strange for some people to hear, maybe, I think, that it's an odd notion, that, based on everything we've, we're told, that you would went back to Iran and you had more freedom there <laughs> to be yes. creative. Can you explain what, what you mean by that? It's very hard to explain because it's a feeling. But, for example, the time that I was working in New York, I was in a clothing manufacturing company. I was in the design room. Even in our fashion design, I had to precisely make whatever the buyers would dictate it to me. To you have to do this. This should be the colors. This should be mm. this. But when I was in Tehran, I could do whatever I wanted to do. I was much freer to do whatever I wanted to do within within the Iranian limitation. But I was uh, feeling less limited in Iran than New York or Paris. I, I still want to dig into I, maybe this feeling of freedom that you feel, because this speaks to identity, I think, to a certain extent. I mean, surely you could get an apartment in Brooklyn, in New York, and be free to design whatever the heck you want there as well, too. So right. the feeling the feeling of freedom that you have when you're in Tehran— uh, to to be the artist that you really want to be, to create the way you want to create. Where do you think that comes from? I guess the feeling I had of freedom and everything was coming really from within myself. I had my roots here. I was at home. So I had this security within myself. It was very much in myself. I don't think about the outer world. But within myself, I had the security and I would say even the love, plus plus the platform, which was the Iranian literature, which really inspired me a lot, even during you, my trials and everything. 
you're and inspired by was, Persian uh, Persian poetry in your work, right? You have two collections that are that are based entirely on works by Iranian poets. You also have a collection that was inspired by the Qajar uh, epoch and a collection with the traditional uh, long uh, uh, textiles. Uh, this Persian history and literature and culture has been really inspirational for you, huh? I always start with a, like a Rumi poem or Saadi or Hafez or Baba Tahir, whatever. The first book that comes under my hand, I just pick it. I start to read it and right away I'm inspired. I mean, sometimes right away, sometimes I need to dig more, but uh, these are things that really inspire me. But surely there's a trade-off, too. The Iranian fashion and design industry has been at work for decades, of course, but only behind closed doors until it was finally Absolutely. decreed that Islam does not now forbid fashion and modeling. What, what's the definition of Islamic fashion as you understand it? What does it mean to, to fashion designers that are working in Iran? For me, I don't, I don't take it this way. I don't take it Islamic design, French design, or... I love my dresses to be worn, to be comfortable, so people love it and make people happy. And I see it from a different angle. All the limitation and everything for me is just a challenge. For me, just it's a thing that I need to consider and just encourage me in my creativity. That's it. Mm. Before I let you go, I have to ask you about this um this other fascinating lane of work that you've been in, which is working on a project. Uh, you've done this with a few places, but you were working on a project to preserve this big historic building by turning it into an international five-star hotel. Why did yes. you leave? What happened with that project? And why did the hotel become known as the Sanctions Hotel? The Sanctions Hotel, I mean, the name of the Sanctions Hotel was because of during the time that we started this project for the hotel, it was supposed to be finished within uh, a year, and we confronted the sanction thing. But I think the name of the sanction hotel was just a media, media shot thing. There was many other problems behind the doors that uh, those people that we were working mm, with, they used the sanctions as an excuse to cover all, the, all their own shortcomings. Shadi, it's such a it, it is a pleasure to get to talk to you. You're so you're you're such a uh, you're a great personality. You have there's so much uh, to to learn from uh, speaking with you. Let me ask you this: we, we, when you have done this job, working in fashion uh, at the top levels yeah. of, of the world, and also at smaller artistic levels in both big Western capitals and in Tehran and fusing that uh, traditional Iranianisms into uh, Western modern styles. Let me try this question on you, see how you feel about it. What is the greatest misconception that you think people have when it comes to Iranians and fashion? Well, what I would say is um, the biggest misconception the way we see ourselves. I mean, Iranians as a nation, we don't consider the treasure, our culture, our being, our identity. We are facing a bit a loss of our own identity, so we are not confident enough about what we are. 
And we have this saying in Iranian that they say that whatever the neighbors have is always greater than what we have. Hmm. So we are not conscious about what we have. But the truth is that we are sitting on a big treasure, which is our culture, first of all. And we need to open on our eyes and see what a beautiful country we have. And what a beautiful people we are. And I mean, like every other country, we have some strengths and we have some weaknesses like everybody else. But we, we are who we are and we have to deal with ourselves the way we are. That's it. Let me ask you about, um, go back to your, uh, where we started with this, uh, this interview and talking about your happy time in the last two or three months. And the, yes. the, the, the red zone, the yellow zone, the green zone. <laughs> uh, uh, if you can be self-reflective for a moment, what, what's the greatest lesson? You know, we've all been impacted. This is, this is universal now by this, this pandemic. What do you yes. feel the greatest lesson is that you've learned maybe about you from this uh, this time period of corona if you had the chance to pass uh-huh. a note of wisdom to all those of iranian descent around the world about what what you've learned what would you say what i would say is that at the end of the day human people here we are here we are the life we have at the end of the day we want to be happy and our happiness is bound the way we see our life and what we do so even if we are limited in our room, in a small room, the only thing that it's never limited and can never be restrained is our mind. So uh, the only thing that we need to do is just to correct our mind and our vision. And with our mind and the way we think, we can always find our happiness and just have a beautiful life. It is so nice to get to talk to you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And be, be safe. And um, we'll look forward to, to hearing more of you and your designs and your creative force in, in Tehran for a long time to come. Merci, Kane Karakadiem Rusa. Thank you for this, Shadi Thank you, Jean. It was very nice talking to you, too. That is Shadi Parand. Uh, she joined us. She's an acclaimed fashion designer. Uh, she joined us from Tehran, Iran today. And this is full time for Rook. Thanks to our amazing little team and all those who are helping us out, sending kind messages, spreading the word. We're going to go out on a vision of Tehran that may be a little different from that of Shadi. This is Hitchcast from 2006 and Echtelaf. میزون باشی تو تهرانه یعنی شهری که اچی که توش میبینی باعث تحریکه تحریک روه تا تو آشغال دونی میفهمی تو هم آدم نیستی یا آشغال بود اینجا همه گرگه میخواه باشی مثل بره بزن چش و کوش تو من واکنم یه زرده اینجا تهرانه لعنتی شوبی نیستش خبری از گل و بستنی چوبی نیستش اینجا چنگل بخور تو خورده نشی اینجا نصف میکنه کنار همه فقیره و مایه داره خفه توی تاکسی همه میخوان کرایه نده حقیقه روشن خودتو به اون را نزن روشن ترش میکنم پس بمون جا نزن خدا پاشو من چند سالی با تر کنم خدا پاشو پاشو دینشون ها راحت از کارم کجا هاشو دیگید نازه اول کارم خدا پاشو من یه آشغالم با ترف کارم خدا پاشو من چند سالی با ترف کارم خدا پاشو پاشو دینشون ها راحت از کارم کجا هاشو 
چیزی تازه اول کارم خدا پاشو من یه آشقالم با هم جرف دارم نمکی با کرخش کناره یه بنزه کل و چرخش با هم کرایه یه بنزه من و تو اون بودیم از یه قطره حالا ببین فاصله ما چقدره دلیل چرخش زمین نیست جازبه پوله که زمینو میچرخونه جالبه این روزا اول پوله بعد خدا همه رکت تر باکت خدا بچه میخواب با یتیمی بازی کنه بابا نمیذاره یتیم به باسه کسی چون که فقط یکی داره همه آگاهی مزین بلایا حتی فرشته هم نمیادیم برا تا نشیم فنا با همین بلایا اما کمک نخواستیم مش بریز کافی همین برا ما آدم مریض صرف ما درد کردم اوم نکردم هر فود و برکرد چند سالی با درد کنم خود و پاشو پاشو دینشو ناراحت از کارم کجا هاشو تازه اول کارم خدا پاشو من یه آشقالم باد جرف کارم خدا پاشو من چند سالی باد جرف کارم خدا پاشو پاشو دینشو ناراحت از کارم کجا هاشو دیدی تازه اول کارم خدا پاشو من یه آشقالم باد جرف کارم تا حالا شده عاشق دختر بشی میخوام حرف بزنم رکتر بشی بیش خوده میگی این عشق تاریخی اما دافه با یه بچه مایه دار خواب دیدی خیره یاده باشه خیره خود بزن قیده هرچی یادم که کناره میبینی چون نیده یکی هم سنه تو سوار ماشین خدا به پوست خم میزنه میکنی با کینه دعا که منم میخوام آیه دا بشم مقدر رو کنم درکش دعا نکن بی اثر نمیکنن درگیش میخوای بخوابی تو بیداری کابوس ببین بیا با هم به این دنیا فوش ناموس بدی با کور باشی نبینی تو فخر و هر جا کنار خیابو نبینی فقر و فرجا بیدار شوی آشغال با طرف داره نکنه تو هم به فکر اینی که چی صرف داره خدا پاشو من چند سالی با درد کارم خدا پاشو پاشو دینشو ناراحت از کارم کجا هاشو دیدی تازه اول کارم خدا پاشو من یه آشقالم با درد کارم خدا پاشو من چند سالی با درد کارم خدا پاشو پاشو دینشو ناراحت از کارم کجا هاشو دیدی تازه اول کارم خدا پاشو من یه آشقالم با درد کارم اینه بعد ما